Well, good morning, Bethel. I'm going to be reading in Psalm chapter 37. So I'm going to begin at verse 1. Do not be agitated by evildoers, and do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noonday. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way by the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger and give up your, your rage. And do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and a wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. In verse 11, but the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. So if um, Jesus is going to get glory in Wilmington, whether it be center of the city or in the suburbs, his people are going to need to be conspicuously different. We're going to need to be a peculiar people that reflect the beauty, the grace, the life-changing power of the gospel. And so if you know your own heart, you know that we've got a fight ahead of us if we're going to be different. So that's what this summer is all about. It's the summer in the Psalms, because we're taking some select Psalms through the rest of the summer, you know. But the purpose is to aid us, to help us in our fight for faith. Um, because guilt can wreak havoc in our souls. Anger can wreak havoc in our souls and in our relationships. Next week, depression can do it. Week after that, fear can do it. So how do we battle all those things? We do it by faith in the grace of God. So that's why we're doing this series. So this morning, Psalm 37, anger and faith. So when you hear anger, some of you might think, that's not my problem. You know, you think of the angry man. or the, This is for all of us. So don't write this off. Don't be thinking about so-and-so. Wish he was here. Wish she was here. God has you here, and I'm here, and I need this. We all need this word, even if you might be placid on the surface and people wouldn't know it. We all deal with getting overheated, stewing over things, getting vexed and irritable and impatient and frustrated and prickly and all of that, okay? And Psalm 37, Jesus quotes it in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay? That could be like a 
heading over this psalm. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is a beautiful, powerful, countercultural thing. So again, if Jesus is going to get glory in Wilmington, his people need to be meek. They need to put anger to death. What does that meekness look like? It's not weakness. It is courageous strength and self-control. Okay, so I want you to consider this is going to be a little unlike, well, a lot unlike normal messages here at Bethel. What we're going to do is pretty extended introduction looking at the life of Jackie Robinson because he's just like the perfect illustration of Psalm 37. Okay, so a little illustration of Jackie Robinson. Then we're going to walk down through the text, just kind of read it with a few comments because it's a long psalm. We're not going to spend lots of time turning over every rock, but just get the lay of the land. And then we're going to hit on what is anger? What's the anatomy of anger? What's underneath anger? Then the anatomy of faith. How is that the the answer, the solution to our anger? And then we're going to talk about the fight of faith, okay? That's where we're headed. Let's dive in here with the life of Jackie Robinson. So he is an American hero. How many know who Jackie Robinson was? Good. That's great. Um, Born on January 31st, 1919 in Cairo, Georgia, youngest of five children of the daughter of a former slave. She was a strong Christian woman who raised her children to follow Jesus. Her name was um, Mally. So just to give you a taste of the dignity and the strength and the principles of this woman of God, um, a lot of this comes from uh, Eric Metaxas has a book called um, Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness, and he has a chapter in there on on Jackie Robinson. Maybe you've seen the movie 42. Um, That's about him as well. So here's what he writes. Once when Jackie and some friends retaliated for a white man's racial slur by spreading tar on his lawn... Mally forced Jackie to repair the damage, supervising the repairs herself. Mally believed in what the Bible taught, and the Bible taught the Christians were to bless those who persecuted them. So Jackie did not have an easy childhood. His father left when he was a few months old. Um, they were poor, but he worked hard and he played hard, and in playing hard, discovered that he had some extraordinary athletic talent, and actually it ran in the family because his older brother ran behind Jesse Owens in like the 36 Olympics, got the silver medal. Um, so he won a lot of accolades for his athletic prowess, but he also had to face the ugly head of racism as it reared up in his face. So during college, again and again, restaurants and hotels refused to serve him and his black teammates. UCLA was kind of at the forefront of integration. He often struggled to control his temper in the face of those injustices. But he met a preacher during those college years named Carl Downs. And Downs taught Jackie that explosive anger was not the Christian way to respond to racism. The meekness of Christ was not weakness, but heroic courage and strength. So as Metaxas writes, Robinson, quote, began to see that the path to justice would not be one with fists and fury but with love and restraint. So he faced multiple run-ins with racist police officers who singled him out and treated him abusively on account of the color of his skin. In 1942, he received his draft papers, and he became a soldier in the segregated army. He received excellent marks in markmanship, passed the officer candidate school tests, but rather than officer training, 
He was put in a segregated cavalry unit where he was tasked with taking care of the horses. You can understand he was pretty angry about that. Joe Lewis, the heavyweight champion of the world at the time, was stationed at the same place as Robinson. He pulled some strings, and Robinson's position improved. He actually was appointed to morale officer for black soldiers at Fort Hood. The racism was still in his face in some really ugly ways many times while he was in the military. Let me just give you one example. So a soda fountain back then, for many of you, maybe some of you remember these kind of things, was kind of like steak and shake, okay? So imagine like that kind of parlor thing. So there's, you know, the stools. Well, there were four stools in the worst spot for blacks. It was poorly placed, 12 for whites in the best place in that space. So black soldiers and their families often had to face long waits while the seats for whites stood empty. Jackie tried to appeal for more seating. And on the phone with a major Hafner, Hafner assumed that he was talking with a white officer. And Robinson's appealing for additional seats. He also assumed that Robinson was actually appealing for them to sit with the whites in those seats. And he said, Lieutenant Robinson, let me put it this way. Would you like it if your wife had to sit next to a nigger? Remember, this is more than 10 years before Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycotts. This is almost 20 years before Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. So after the military, Robinson played baseball in the Negro National League, took a role as physical education instructor as well at a college, Samuel Houston College. So little did he know that at this time, the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Branch Rickey, was dreaming and scheming about how he could break the color barrier in professional baseball. So Ricky was a Christian who wanted to fight this injustice, but he needed the right man for the job. So after some secret scouting, he had to keep it on the down low. He found the right man in Jackie Robinson. Not only was he an exceptional baseball player, he was a serious Christian, and his character had been tested and refined in the fire. So he knew how hard it would be for this first black player, and he knew how the whole enterprise would suffer terrible setbacks if this man wasn't able to refrain from retaliating. So when Ricky first met Robinson, after sharing his vision and the plan, he pointed, so he as a believer and Robinson as a believer in his office, he pointed Robinson to Matthew 5, the words of Jesus about turning the other cheek. Metaxas writes at this moment, Ricky was betting that Jackie Robinson knew what he himself knew. Although this was indeed humanly impossible, with God's help, it was entirely possible. And Jackie did know it. As a Christian, he knew that if he committed himself to doing this thing, which both men felt was God's will, God would give Jackie the strength to accomplish it. I want to pause and just say, some of you have been battling with anger for a long time, and you wonder, like you maybe can throw up your hands and think you can't beat this. So, this is true. Do you believe this? It's humanly impossible. With God's help, it's entirely possible, and Psalm 37 is going to show us the way. So, Robinson became a member of the Montreal Royals as a farm team for the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time. Um, Nevertheless, Jackie and his new wife, Rachel, had to endure numerous indignities and injustices. They were bumped for flights for no apparent reason, except that there were whites who wanted those seats. Restaurants refused to serve them. Regular race baiting and name-calling took place. 
Then in April of 1947, Ricky called Robinson up to play in his first game as a Brooklyn Dodger. And as expected, there was some vicious opposition, even, even on the team itself at the beginning. One week into his major league debut, Robinson approached the plate in the first inning against the Phillies. So just to give you a taste of some of the filthy abuse, and this is like just the tip of the iceberg that he had to endure, here's what he wrote in his autobiography. So this is coming from the Phillies' manager. Not just people in the stands, the manager. So here's what he writes. Almost as if it had been synchronized by some demonic conductor, hate poured forth from the Phillies' dugout. Hey, nigger, why don't you go back to the cotton field where you belong? They're waiting for you in the jungles, black boy. Hey, snowflake, which one of those white boys' wives are you dating tonight? There was a lot more than that, and it was much worse than that. One good thing came of this abuse. His teammates were all so enraged that from then on, they were decisively on his side. But his teammates couldn't stop the injustices from coming. So being refused at restaurants and hotels, letters came with death threats, opposing players pulled dirty tricks. You can slide with your spikes up, and, you know, he played second base. And he got a seven-inch gash one time on his leg as a result, so they even tried to physically abuse him. Metaxas writes, despite all of it, Jackie kept his cool and his promise to Ricky And he kept his reliance on God, getting down on his knees every night to pray for strength. He was voted Rookie of the Year in 1947. His numbers spoke for themselves in 1949. He won the National League MVP award. The Dodgers won the National League pennant in 52 and 53. They finally won the World Series in 55. He was voted to the All-Star team six years in a row. And then he retired in 1956, and he went into business. And Metaxas writes this of him. Always interested in helping the poor. Remember that when we get to Psalm 37. Jackie now formed the Jackie Robinson Construction Company, dedicated to building low-income housing. He regularly bought food for the needy, leaving it food banks for distribution. He visited six children in hospitals and crusaded against drug use. He also became deeply involved in the burgeoning civil rights movement, working with Martin Luther King Jr. and traveling to the Deep South in an effort to bring about full freedom for the descendants of slaves. Robinson died at the age of 53 on October 24th, 1972. His wife was making breakfast, and he kind of ran out and hugged her and said, I love you, and he collapsed, and he died of a heart attack. So think think of how God's grace was at work in this man's life. Think of how God used his mother that preacher, Carl Downs, Branch Rickey, all of these circumstances, his grace, his strength, his word, to form the incredible strength and courage and self-control that sustained him through all of those trials, all that injustice, the power of meekness. He went from taking matters into his own hands as a boy, remember spreading tar on the neighbor's lawn in retaliation, to being an American hero who made and changed history. So if Jackie Robinson can live out Psalm 37 in the face of all those enemies and threats and frustrated desires and indignities and injustices, and if you and I want to make war on our anger and cultivate courageous, Christ-like meekness, Psalm 37 is going to shine light on the path and show us how, okay? So let's pray for eyes to see briefly. 
Let's walk through the passage, and then we'll consider the anatomy of anger and then the anatomy of faith. Oh, Father, I pray that you would please incline our hearts to your word now. I'm sure many of us have come in. We've had one of those days already. There's lots of distractions. And also our hearts so often want to squirt out from the kind of conviction that we may feel when we think about anger and irritability and getting overheated. Lord, you want to grab our attention so that you can free us and forgive us and cleanse us and help us and change us and strengthen us so that we can reflect the beauty of Christ-like meekness. And so grab our attention now, open our eyes, soften our hearts, make us receptive, and change us by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this psalm has a specific context. Okay, right off the bat, fret not yourself. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Okay, so there's some evil threats, some enemies that are coming after the psalmist, okay? Outside threats, wicked enemies who are prospering at the psalmist's expense and doing so as a result of their evil, okay? So there is this call to faith away from anger, wrath, getting overheated, fretting, not freaking out. You may not have the same kind of enemies and threats in the form of enemies like this, literal enemies, but still the application of the psalm and the path forward is broadly applicable. Whatever threatens our faith and stirs us up to anger. So just recognize that as we head in here. This is for all of us, people who get worked up over things and stew over things and get irritable and biting and impatient and prickly. Okay, so let's do this fly over here. Fret not yourself. Be not envious because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade away, fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. They don't last. They'll fade. And all of their anger-producing influences will soon be gone. Trust in the Lord and do good. Don't take matters into your own hands. We do so often. Why? That's what we're going to look at, the anatomy of anger and then the anatomy of faith. So don't stoop to the level of your adversaries, your competition, fighting fire with fire. Trust the Lord. Do the right thing regardless of how the chips fall. Don't try to control and manipulate to get what you want or to avoid what you fear. Don't compromise your integrity in order to secure your safety or your success. Trust in the Lord and do good. Do the right thing regardless of the consequences. Dwell in the land. Befriend or tend to faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You don't have to take matters into your own hands. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you what you really need. He will so shape your desires so that he gives you what you desire. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He'll protect you. He'll vindicate you. He'll provide for you. He'll care for you. You don't have to take matters into your own hands. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light. He'll vindicate you. Your justice as the noonday. The truth will eventually come to light. 
Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. It's like shooting yourself in the foot. For the evildoers shall be cut off. We heard that already. They're going to fade away. They're not forever. But those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek, they shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked. They are not in control. He is in control. For he sees that his day is coming the wicked draw the bow, bend their, draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. It will turn back on them. They may look like they're getting away with what they're doing, but nobody's getting away ultimately with anything in God's world. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked for the arms of the wicked shall be broken. So the weapons are broken in verse 14, and their arms, their ability to use them are broken. And the Lord instead will uphold with his mighty omnipotent arms the righteous, and nothing and no one can break his arms. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they, shall, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures, which is here today, gone tomorrow. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. See, he's selfish. He's looking out for himself. But the righteous, even though he's persecuted, he's generous and gives. See how Robinson lived this out? For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. So the reasoning is his future's secure. God's going to take care of him. So he's free to be generous and to give. He's not afraid. But those who are wicked, not trusting the Lord, they feel like they've got to grab all they can because they're afraid. And they're going to be cut off. Verse 23, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Let's skip down to verse 34. Wait for the Lord, keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Seems like they're so fruitful and prosperous. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. Opposite of person of anger. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Okay. Now, we need to examine the anatomy of anger a bit here. Why do we get angry? Why do you get angry? And I'm talking sinful anger. Yes, there's such a thing as righteous anger. But, you know, 
That's more the exception than the rule. I think we flatter ourselves. Okay? So we're talking about sinful anger. We get angry when things get in the way of what we want or when things threaten to take what we have that we want to keep. Things like control over our schedule, our money, our safety, our comfort, our reputation, our control. Do you see how fears and desires are underneath your anger? I remember hearing David Palson say, fears are desires turned on their head. They're two sides of the same coin. If you are afraid to die, it's because you want to live. And that's what's underneath our anger. Do you see that in Psalm 37? It's all these threats. We're afraid. So we might get all agitated and worked up like we've got to protect ourselves. We get angry in the face of frustrated desires and cravings or in the face of fear of not getting what we want or fear of having what we want taken away. So we lash out against those threats. Happens with children and toys, adults in traffic, teenagers with parents, parents with teenagers, employers with employees, employees with employers, and on and on. We are slaves of our fears and our desires, and we turn into survivors like cosmic spiritual survivors. We act like cosmic orphans. Christians act like this all the time. We have to scrap and hustle and work the angles in order to get what we want, keep what we have. We're even willing to lie and cheat and steal and cut corners and compromise in order to keep up, to make it happen. We're willing to bite and devour and bark to keep the threats at bay. It's almost as if We don't believe we have a heavenly father who loves us and knows what we need before we ask and takes care of us like he takes care of the sparrows and clothes the flower of the field, flowers of the field. So the hidden narrative of our anger is, I got to fight or else I might lose. What if I lose? I can't lose. Do you see? Fears and desires underneath our anger. So how do you battle anger? How have you battled, tried to battle anger in the past? How do you counsel other people to, to battle their anger? Just stop it. i got to stop it. Oh, that's going to be helpful. How's that going? Pretend you're not angry. Stuff it down. Bury it. That's real great. Layer upon layer upon layer. Passive, 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 passive. Boom! Explosion. Aggressive. You can do some yoga. Like, okay, maybe... Whatever. I'm talking about answers. Could that be helpful to stretch? Yeah, that's good. Rhythmic breathing? No. We've got to understand the fears and desires underneath so that we can strike at the roots and then reseed the soil with the grace and truth of the gospel so that those noxious weeds die and the sweet fruit of the Spirit abounds in our lives. Don't you want that? I need that. I want that. So that's what we're after. This is the fight of faith. Faith versus anger. Not just for this series, but it's the fight of our lives. So we've got to trust the Lord to fight our battles, vindicate us, not take matters into our own hands. So let's look at the anatomy of faith. What does this look like? Point number two. So when we see anger, there are fears and desires underneath. We are believing that we are on our own, and we've got to scrap and fight in order to save ourselves or provide for ourselves or protect ourselves. But faith 
focuses on the fact that the battle has already been won and that the battle is the Lord's. So what are your deepest desires and what are your greatest fears? Do you stop and think about this? Let me just throw a few out. You could add to the list, I'm sure. You don't want to be alone. You don't want to be destitute. You don't want to be a nobody. You don't want to be rejected. You don't want to suffer. Desires. You want to be loved. You want your life to count. You want to have enough and even enjoy an abundance. You want to know you belong. You want to know joy and pleasure. So those are a few of the fears and desires. Does the grace and truth of God in the gospel of Jesus have anything to say to those fears and desires? Whose battle is it for those things? Do you see how the greatest, most decisive battle is won? We can trust the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord, and God is for us. And if he's for us, who can be against us? There are ultimately no threats for Christians. God is the only ultimate threat. Do you realize that? Because our sin is our deepest problem. So unbelief is actually more dangerous than the most dangerous earthly enemy. Unbelief is more dangerous than the devil. So listen, listen to this good, good news, the kind of stuff that can reseed the landscape of your soul and the sweet fruit of the gospel can grow up. This is a result of the gospel when Jesus is our Savior, has dealt with our greatest problem, our sin, secured us down at the core of who we are. He took our punishment on the cross in our place. We trust in him. He's our Savior, our substitute. He reconciled us to the Father. No thanks to us. Romans 8. Just listen to this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? You see, there's nothing to fear. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's indeed interceding for us. Nothing to fear. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The greatest threats, no threats. What's the sweetest desire? Is to have intimate communion with God. Nothing gets separated from his love. So God wins in the end. Justice wins in the end. God's with you in the present. He won't leave, leave or forsake his children. He's dealt with your past. If you're trusting Jesus as your Savior, your sin was the greatest threat. God, God's wrath and just punishment was our greatest threat. And he reconciled you to himself if you're trusting Jesus. So all of our fears and desires, the Lord meets them. He satisfies them. He's our protector. He's our vindicator. He is our very great reward. So our good desires and our safety is not at the whim, at the mercy of powerful threats. No. Our deepest desires and our ultimate safety is guaranteed 
by the mercy of the omnipotent God. So you see how this works. If you want to win, quote unquote, like if you've got to win, earthly win, fear, feel, fa- fear failure and losing, if you must have perfect health or comfort or control or safety or whatever, you will be frustrated and you will get angry when those things elude you or are taken away. But if you want God and you want him to be glorified, then you can no matter what your circumstances, what you're losing. I mean, Paul is in prison rejoicing because <laughs> he's already counted everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ his Lord. So listen, just would you hear this? Please hear this. We need to hear this. We need to believe this. The one thing that we most need is the one thing that is available to all of us in limitless supply. There's a lot of areas of life where it's like a zero-sum game. Well, at least we operate that way. Okay? No comment from the economics professor. Okay? Um, So... Zero-sum game, you know what that means? Like one person's gain is another person's loss like in poker or in a raffle. Okay, whatever. Um, But in Psalm 37, you can see that it's so easy to get into this thinking, well, the wicked prosper at the expense of the righteous. It's either or. You know, one person gets the job, the other people don't. There's only so many people that get accepted to the college. If I, I, I have to have this relationship, if I lose him or her, I, I, I don't know what I'll do. But in reality, with the person you most need, who has the things you most need, grace and mercy, love, it is not a zero-sum game. So <laughs> our deepest desires, we can delight ourselves in the Lord and he'll give us the desires of our heart. And the greatest threats, he's omnipotently sovereign over them. Your greatest good can't be stolen. God's plans can't be thwarted. The gospel of Jesus overcomes, meets our deepest fears. Jesus can satisfy our heart's deepest desire. So do you see how if we're going to deal with anger, we've got to deal with our fears and our desires, and we need to focus on what the gospel says to our fears and desires if we're going to be freed from the slavery of anger. So listen to this little story as we close, and we're going to, like Russell said, sing uh, just, I think, one verse of living faith, and then we'll have a little time for community discussion. So Ray Ortland tells this story on December 26, 1944. Second Lieutenant Hiru Onoda of the Japanese Army was sent to the Philippine island of Lubang. His mission was to resist the American advance, and he was ordered to fight on indefinitely. Anoda never got word when the war ended some months later. For 30 more years, he went on fighting World War II. 30 more years. He lived in hiding, came out at night to steal food from the villages, shot at people now and then. About 10 years into it, he found a newspaper article about himself, but he thought it was a trick to get him to surrender. The Philippine government dropped leaflets into the jungle asking him to come out. They brought loudspeakers in and shouted, Anoda, the war is over. One day, his own brother stood at the microphone and begged him to give up, but he didn't believe it. He fought on until 1974 
when the Japanese government sent in his old commanding officer, Major Taniguchi, who ordered Inoda to surrender. He finally gave up. That man's mind was trapped in 1945. He shut out the good news of peace and lost 30 years of his life hiding in the jungles, fighting a lost cause. We can be like him today with our thoughts and feelings trapped in a war that ended long ago, defensive, touchy, explosive. The night Jesus was born, the angel stepped up to the microphone and shouted, Peace on earth. For 2,000 years, God has been dropping leaflets of the good news into the jungles of our minds. Through his cross, Christ won the victory over everything against us, against us. Some of us need to get out of the jungle. Like, it's over. It really is. You don't have to be a survivor. (laughs) And then, with God fighting for us, we can fight the good fight of the faith. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please show us the grace of the gospel. You show us here in Psalm 37 that there are ultimately just no threats. And you want to meet us and be at the center of our deepest desires. You alone can satisfy our souls. So please help us to stop operating like this Japanese soldier, like cosmic orphans scrapping for survival. Help us to believe the gospel. And may your love and grace and mercy so deal with our fears, so shape our desires, that we would be a conspicuously different people for the glory of Jesus, reflecting his meekness, courageously, humbly, lovingly, in a way that the world just has to stand up and take notice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.